Broadcasting from coast to coast. City to city, coast to coast. It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Good Thursday morning. Welcome on in to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Thank you for making us a part of your Thursday morning here. As we got a busy one. U.S. Open underway at Brookline Country Club in Massachusetts. We'll keep you updated all throughout at least the next two hours as we roll along till 11 a.m. Eastern. On who's playing well, who is struggling. We know the course is always going to be tough. The U.S. Open always tries to have uh, higher scores as high as possible. So we'll keep you updated on who's playing well and who is not for the next two hours. Plus, also have a lot other stuff to dive into as well. So why even wait? waste any more time? Let's jump right into it. As always, right every show, we're coming to you live from where else? With the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios. And whether it's great pizza, hot heroes, and... Phenomenal dinners. Make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. Game 6 NBA Finals is tonight. I think the Celtics are winning. I think they're forcing a Game 7 in large parks. I think tonight we are getting a Jason Tatum game. The Celtics season, obviously, since they're down 3-2, it's on the line. And you need your best player, if you're Boston, to step up take the game over and set the tone and that's what I think we're going to get tonight from Jason Tatum at home at TD Garden with your season on the line I think we are getting a vintage Tatum game tonight for what really would be the first time in this NBA Finals we've seen glimpses uh, in the postseason we've seen a 46 point game season on the line down three games to two in Milwaukee second round of the playoffs Tatum has showed you and showed your regions and flashes throughout the postseason why he was first-team All-NBA. We have yet, though, to see it in the NBA Finals. I think tonight we are finally going to get a vintage, true, Jason Tatum star kind of game. In big games like this, right? the NBA is one of those leagues where you truly need your star player to set the tone for the rest of the team. And if Jason Tatum, I think he's going to tonight play clean basketball, play crisp basketball... I think that style of play is infectious, will carry over to the rest of the team. And honestly, that's all the Celtics need to do to win tonight. There's no magic, you know, formula. There's no praying to whatever God you uh, prefer to believe in for a miracle tonight. The key to the Celtics' victory for game number six and extending the series, it's very simple. Playing clean, crisp basketball. That's it. You don't need a, a heroic uh, effort from Jason Tatum. You don't need a miracle performance from, let's say, Jalen Brown or Marcus Smart or another Al Horford, you know, 26-point effort like you showed in Game 1. You got to keep it simple. You limit your turnovers, play good defense, rebound the basketball. That's the key to success here. That is the key to victory for Boston. It is not simple. It's not complicated. And I think tonight, Jason Tatum is going to set the tone, playing crisp basketball, Playing clean basketball, that will be, for me, infectious spreads to the rest of the team. And I think that is how the Celtics are going to win tonight. Like, let's go for what it is. Jason Tatum, again, we talked about him being a star, and he is. But they don't need Jason Tatum to have a Steph Curry-like performance like he had in Game 3 where Steph scored 43. You don't need a LeBron-like performance or Kevin Durant-like performance. We've seen them 
do so many times in the playoffs where they just have insane games, carry the team, score 40, 45, 50 points in order to win. You don't need, if you're the Celtics, Jason Tatum to score 46 points like he did in that Bucks uh, game number six on the road in Milwaukee. You don't need another performance like that in order to win game six tonight. You really don't. The only thing I'm looking at for Jason Tatum, the two areas I am most focused in tonight that I think will have the biggest impact in a victory are assist numbers and turnover numbers. That's it. If you can have Jason Tatum's assist number be in the high single digits, 7, 8, 9, maybe even in the low double digits, 10, 11, 12, and you keep that turnover number low, let's say 4 or less, I think the Celtics are winning tonight. That to me is guaranteeing a game 6 victory. If you can have Jason Tatum, forget about scoring for a second here. If he can become just a playmaker in this offense while also at the same time limiting his own turnovers... Not giving the Warriors second and third chances on offense. I think the Celtics are winning tonight. And they're going back to the Bay for Game 7. Like, we really have seen so far two consistent things from Jason Tatum so far in these first five games of the NBA Finals. He's been scoring at an inefficient clip, right? He has struggled from the field. We know the first game, he was 3-17 from the floor. Even in this last game, number 5, he scored well and shot 50% from the field. It truly didn't feel like Jason Tatum was taken over, and a lot of those misses came, unfortunately, later in the game, especially in the fourth quarter when the Celtics really needed him. So we've known he has struggled scoring, especially out of the Fisher clip so far in the finals through five games. And also we know that he has struggled with the turnovers. Right? He has, right now, leads all um, finals players with turnovers in 18. He has struggled with ball security, whether it's his own dribbling, whether it's passing. It has been a struggle. Those have really been the two consistent areas so far um, from Jason Tatum in these five games in the finals. But here's the thing, though. The Celtics have shown you so far they can win even when Jason Tatum isn't lighting up the scoreboard. They don't need him to score 30, 35, 40 points a night in order to carry them to victory. The Celtics are a deep, balanced team. So you don't need one player to just take over the game, go beast mode, and drag it to the end. All you need, really, is fundamental basketball. That's it. And really, for Jason Tatum, in one of the areas that he has done at times so far in this postseason, I think we saw in game number one, is have an impact on the game that's not scoring. And for me, when we talk about star players, right? we talk about superstars and best players in the league, I think one of the separating factors of, let's say, a star from a superstar, a good player from a great player... One of the big-time separating factors is the ability to impact the game in a positive way when things aren't going your way, when you're not scoring 35 or 40 points in a game. It's the ability to, whether it's play good defense on the other end, force turnovers, get rebounds, make life hell for the other team scoring, and if you're not scoring, make sure they're not scoring as well. It's playmaking. It's assists. It's setting your teammates up to get good looks. It's sucking the defense in in order to make the extra pass to get your teammate open. It's making plays. It's taking and diverting attention away from other players that allow them to have success. So, And we have seen that so far from Jason Tatum at different points in this postseason where even though he's not scoring, even though he's not you know, scoring at an efficient rate and lighting up the scoreboard in terms of points-wise in the stat column, he has shown the ability to impact the game in a positive way in other areas of the game. I think, to me, that's why when I look at Jason Tatum tonight, when I look at where what he has to do in order to have success, 
That's why the two areas I'm pointing to are assists and turnovers. Star players, great players, find ways to make a winning impact that sometimes doesn't have to do with points. Tatum in game number one, to his credit, he was 3-17 from the floor in, that, uh, in the first game of the finals on the road in Golden State. But one of the reasons why Golden State, uh, one of the reasons why Boss was able to have that big time fourth quarter comeback was because Jason Tatum finished with 13 turnover, uh, 13 assists in that game. He realized, you know what, my shots aren't falling, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set my teammates up. I'm going to make sure at least if I'm not hitting shots, I'm going to put them in a position to hit shots. And he has done that consistently throughout the postseason. Sure, he struggled at times with efficiency. Sure, at times he struggled scoring. But the one area he has really been consistent about, I think, has been playmaking. And that's why tonight, assist numbers are going to be a big-time stat to look at for Jason Tatum. Sure, he'll score. But if he can also make life easier for Marcus Smart, for Jason, uh, for Jalen Brown, for Al Horford, for Robert Williams, that is the key to victory for the Boston Celtics. Now, like, it, the game plan is not, oh, Jason Tatum scored 40 points. The game plan for the Celtics is Jason Tatum just set the offense up. Keep it moving. Get the ball moving. Get good looks. Take care of the basketball. Play good defense. That is the game plan here for Boston and Ime Odoka in Game 6. It's not just Tatum, carry us. Jason Tatum, we need a miracle. Please, please do what Steph Curry did in Game Number 4. When the Warriors season, down 2-1 in Boston for Game 4, was on the line, he scored 43 points and 10 rebounds. You don't need, if you're the Celtics, that kind of performance from Tatum tonight. You don't need him to go out and be a hero. You need, honestly, fundamental basketball. It's not sexy stuff, folks. I get it. It's not, you know, oh man, score 40 and let's just have ourselves a night that's easy to go. It's not sexy what we're talking about here, but the simplicity of what we're talking about highlights that why the Celtics have been the better team and why, truly, if you just keep it simple, the Celtics are winning this game. That's it. If you are able to move the ball, set the offense up, and get good looks, this team is going to score and this team is going to win. And on the flip side, if you just take care of the basketball, don't give it away like you're Oprah during Christmas time, you are going to win. We talk about Jason Tatum. I mentioned it before, he's led the NBA Finals and of all players in turnovers. He has 18 turnovers through five games of the Finals. He has 95 turnovers for the entire postseason this year. By the way, that's an NBA postseason record. LeBron had the record with 94. Jason Tatum has surpassed him. 95 turnovers in one postseason is an NBA record. Cut it down. Take care of the basketball. I don't know if you need stick them on your hands when you're dribbling. I don't know if it's getting LASIK surgery before the game starts and you can see the passing lanes better. I don't know what it is. I don't care what you got to do. You got to, though. It is imperative. Cut down on the turnovers. I am begging you, Jason Tatum, and I'm begging you, the Celtics. And the reason why I'm putting this on Tatum it's because we mentioned it before. The star player on a team sets the tone. The Celtics are going to go as Jason Tatum goes. If he is able to forget about score, get good looks, facilitate the basketball, and more importantly, take care of the basketball. Don't throw it away. Don't dribble in the traffic. When he's driving to the hole, not driving for a foul, but driving to score and finish at the rim. If he is going up strong, even not having the layups or the shots fall, but he's getting fouled, but doing so in, in a way that is strong, where he's balanced, that is a key to success for the Celtics. 
Too many times, Jason Tatum has dribbled into traffic, looking for a foul, hasn't gotten the call, and it's been a turnover going the other way. That has killed the Warriors, or that has killed the Celtics in this, in this playoffs, in these finals. The turnover numbers are alarming, but not just that. The points off of turnovers are also insanely alarming. The Warriors are a deadly team at scoring uh, on the break. You have to limit that in the biggest way possible. One of the ways is cleaning up the turnovers. That, to me, when it comes to turnovers, when it comes to uh, taking care of the basketball or assist numbers, those are the two biggest areas I'm looking at tonight. It's very simple. But that is how the Celtics are going to win Game 6. And that, to me, the reason why it starts against Tatum is because a star player sets the tone for the rest of the team. If he's able to come out strong, get the crowd into it, Right? You know that that Boston crowd's going to be frenzied. You get off to a hot start, get some juice in that building, that all of a sudden alleviates some of the pressure from Marcus Smart. Take some of the attention away from Jalen Brown and Robert Williams. And now, you allow them to play more free. You will give them better looks, whether it's on the offensive end of the floor, because you're commanding double teams from the, Celtic, uh, from the Warriors' defense. Whether it's on the defensive end, and you are buying in, causing turnovers. Instead of giving turnovers away... You are now causing turnovers. You are making Steph Curry's life hell. You are not giving Andrew Wiggins nearly the amount of clean looks that he got in game number five. It starts on both ends of the floor from Boston. But the recipe for success is very simple. Play clean basketball. So far through five games, the Warriors up 3-2. I think for me, this is more, this series has been more about the Celtic struggles then is the Warriors winning. Like, the Celtics have shot themselves in the foot all throughout these five games, and especially in their three losses. Turnovers, bad defense, bad shot selection at times, where they've just chucked up shots for no reason. Lack of focus. It sounds simple, but there have been times where the Celtics just don't seem locked in. The end of game number four, where they just couldn't score and scored six points in the final seven minutes as Seth Curry's going off. The first six minutes of game number five, they came out slow, lackadaisical. They didn't look like they cared. It was game five of the finals in which game the game five winner in a series tied 2-2 wins 80% of the time. And they came out like it was a game in January. Lack of focus, turnovers, bad defense, bad shot selection. It's all been the reason why right now the Celtics are down 3-2. Again, if they play good basketball, and for me, the best game they played was game three, they won that game. If you can get back to that, they are winning this series. They are winning the finals. It's a very simple strategy. Don't turn the ball over and have your best player just take him. Forget about scoring 40 points. Facilitate. Get the offense rolling. It's going to be very important for me for Jason Tatum to set the tone. Games like this with your season on the line is when you need your best player to step up. Tatum, at his credit, did so in the Bucks series. Down 3-2, 46 points. You don't need another 46-point effort tonight in Game 6 against the Warriors. You need, though, a facilitating. You need a playmaking Jason Tatum tonight on the offensive end and for him to take care of the basketball also on the offensive end for the Celtics to win. I think we're going to get both of those areas, and that, to me, is leading to a Game 6 victory for the Celtics tonight. So I'm curious your thoughts here as we have a lot of construction going on behind me. Hopefully it doesn't come over the mic too much. We'll make sure to close the window uh, when we go to break here. But... What are your thoughts tonight in game number six? What is your confidence level in the Celtics making this a seven-game series? And also, is the most important player for Boston tonight Jason Tatum? Is the most is the player they need to step up the most? The guy who is first-team All-NBA? Or are you looking at someone else like Marcus Smart? 
or Jalen Brown or Robert Williams. Who is the most important player in game number six? And I will get your thoughts here at Facebook Worldwide Sports Network. Uh, you can tweet me on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show. Ryan Hickey Show also on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, Phil Mickelson will tee off in a few hours at the U.S. Open. Should he get booed by the fans for his comments and then uh, ditching the PGA Tour for the Live Tour? We'll discuss that when we return. Listen to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in to the Ryan Hickey Show right here. Where else? The Worldwide Sports Radio Network. All right. What is the reaction going to be surrounding Phil Mickelson this weekend in his first appearance on U.S. soil since obviously leaving and ditching the PGA Tour to go play for the Live Tour. For me, I don't expect Phil Mickelson to get booed by the crowd this week, and I don't think he should. I don't think fans should be booing Phil Mickelson for his decision because here's the honest truth. This is what I believe personally, and I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think this is the majority thought when it comes to athletes and sports and our rooting fandom. 99% of the time, we don't really care what athletes say off the field, what they do off the field. For the most part, all we care about is how do you play in between the white lines? How do you play on the field, on the course, on the ice? As long as you're playing well, look, I'll speak for myself here, but I think a lot of other fans will echo the same thought. It's not that you can do whatever the hell you want, but basically, you can do whatever the hell you want. Performance and when we root for our teams and our favorite players, a lot of it has to do with play on the field. If you're playing well, you get away with a lot more. There's been plenty of players that said some bad things. There are plenty of players that have had some bad actions, whether it's legal or illegal, whether it's morally, ethically right. But hey, I hate to say it. I hate I hate to really boil it down, but this is can't lie to you. As long as you're playing well, everything else is tolerated. As long as Phil, if you're a big Phil fan, as long as he's in contention, as long as he's, you know, still giving you the thumbs up, still being the same old lefty, maybe getting a few birdies, maybe, you know, making some noise at the U.S. Open, everything else is is forgotten about. Everything else, I don't want to say is forgiven, but it's tolerated because you want to see your favorite player play well. And in this case for Phil Mickelson, I think that's going to be the case. And look, we've already started to see it. Right, in the few practice rounds he's played at Brookline this week, whether it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, seen some social media videos uh, filter on out. He's been cheered by fans. He's had a big time following. He is really, you know, almost had it kind of be like normal. Like you would forget if you just woke up, if you were in a coma or in a bubble under a rock, let's say, for the last few months, and you just woke up on Tuesday, looked on social media, and saw the, the following uh, of Phil, you would have thought, you know what? Yeah, another major. Just. Same old, same old. Nothing has happened. No controversy has been surrounding Phil. The fans are there. They're chanting his name. He's giving the thumbs up. Everything is kind of like good old times. And you know what? I think that's the way it should be. I think that's the way it should be. I know things public uh, and PR-wise have not been, let's say, smooth for Phil. uh, And really, any of the other golfers that have left the PGA Tour in order to join the Live Golf Tour. And I don't want to say that the media cares more about morals than we do. 
But that has been the bigger story for media, for folks that cover uh, golf for a living. The big questions have been not about how Phil's going to play. It's been about, you know, accepting the money. And I don't want to say that I care more about play than, than morals, but again, I'm going to be just real with you here. I fall into the category. I fall into that category of rooting for the player for what they do on the field, on the course, not so much the, their politics, their beliefs, their, their actions off the field. Like, I'll be honest, I don't hold any ill will towards Phil. He's playing this weekend. I'll be watching. I will absolutely be watching to see how Phil plays. And if he's towards the top, I'll be rooting for lefty. He's always a guy that I've, you know, rooted for. He's always a guy that I've enjoyed seeing have success. I loved when he won the PGA Championship last year. Like, he's a guy that's just a, a fun, kind of loving, almost, uh, you'll say this way, one of the, the more down-to-earth golfers that the PGA Tour has seen. He has his pitfalls. He has his own wrongdoings, right? But can't pretend like we don't. Like, I, I can't sit here. My, I guess I'll say this. My biggest thing is that I don't feel like I'm holier than thou. I don't want to pretend like I am holier than thou and judge Phil Mickelson for his morals, for his ethics, for basically being a mercenary. When you know what? I have no idea how I'll react in that situation. Like, it's so easy to say. And one of the things that actually has bothered me about this entire live golf movement uh, when players like Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson have gone and there's been a lot of criticism for them leaving the tour and going to basically take the money uh, that comes from questionable areas and is, is run by very questionable people in the Saudi Arabians. Uh, but let me just say this. right? I can't sit here and pretend like I would turn down $200 million if I was Phil Mickelson. I can't sit here and know for a fact that I'd say, no, I'm good and not take a cash grab when it's presented to me. It's a hell of a lot easier to sit in the seat that I'm sitting in right now talking to you guys, it's a hell of a lot easier to be a member of the media and criticize Phil and Dustin Johnson and Sergio Garcia and whoever else is, you know, making the jump. It's a hell of a lot easier to criticize them for taking the money, taking the cash, even though they know where that money is coming from is not, let's say, from the most, uh, most ethically sound uh, basis. It's a lot easier to criticize when you are not in that position. When you are in no position to be getting and earning that kind of money. Like, doing the radio show. I will probably never be offered $200 million to do any sort of, of media. But do I know for a fact, if I was, I could sit here and say, no, I'm going to turn it down? I can't. I'd like to think it. I'd like to think that, I, you know, deep down I'm a good person and morally I'll do the right thing and not allow money to kind of sometimes buy ethics. I'd like to think it. And I really try every day to, to kind of live that way and just try to be a good person. But the reality is, again, $200 million sitting in front of your face, sitting in front of my face, I have no idea how I'm going to react. We never really have to think about it because 99.9% of us will never be in that situation to either reject a big-time paycheck or accept it. So I like to think I'd follow my moral compass in that situation. I like to think if I'm Phil Mickelson, I wouldn't need the money. But you know what? Some guys are different. Dustin Johnson basically wants to play less. And you know what? If you're Dustin Johnson, you want to be spend more time with your family, you're getting an offer to, to get $125 million to play less events, and it's guaranteed money. Again, it's hard to say no. So I really can't sit here and hold a grudge towards any of the golfers that decide to leave the PGA Tour, excuse me, and join the Live Golf Tour. I get, look, are they backed by the, the most ethically uh, sound people? Absolutely not. They don't support anything they do. But with that said, I can't sit here and pretend like I would say no to the money. Ethics aside, I'm holier than thou. Phil, I can't believe you, you took the money 
you sell out. I can't. So if I can't sit here and without a, without a shadow of a doubt say that I would say no, I would do what John Rom did, who, to John Rom's credit, I commend him, and I think what he did is extremely admirable and respectable. He has gotten an offer from Live Golf. He said no. He spoke about this week how the money for him is not, you know, he could already retire if he wanted to. He already has enough money to live off of. He wants to do things the right way. Credit to John Rom, and he wants to play in the PJ Tour because for him that means more. Credit to him. I respect the hell out of that. But for others, it's about, you know, I hate to say it, a business. So many times as fans, we assume, right, the players are playing the game for the love of the game, to win championships, right? We always assume golfers are out there to win every major. We always assume quarterbacks, head coaches, pitchers, center uh, centers uh, in hockey. We all always assume they are playing for the love of the game, for the competition, to win championships, and the money for them doesn't matter. Well, for a lot of guys, that's not the case. For a lot of guys, they'll go where the biggest paycheck is. For a lot of the guys, they'll do whatever it takes to get the, you know, the most money, and they're motivated more about money than, let's say, by winning. And I think we've seen that with Phil, with Dustin Johnson, with Graham McDowell, with, with Sergio, with, with other players that have joined Live. They're, they're telling you, look, the money's more important than, let's say, the history of the PGA Tour, than playing in some of the most prestigious tournaments that have you know, great history and, and you know, great uh, following behind it. They said, you know what? I'll take the cash. I'm playing golf for you know as a job. I'm getting the most money. I'm going to take it. Just like it for us in any industry we're in, money would have a big time factor, right? Most of the time, we're working for the weekend. Most of the time, we're working to get that paycheck or get that bonus or get a raise or get a promotion or maybe get a new job that has you know a bigger title but maybe more money, less responsibility, whatever it is, right? We're always kind of working. Get the most money possible. And if that comes with with working less, that's obviously the the ideal situation. So for some golfers, that's their their MO. I can't hate on that. I can't sit here and pretend like, oh, they're ruining the game. This is, you know, a, a disgrace to sports all over. I can't. So if I can't to pre- uh, pretend to be better than Phil or, or DJ, then I can't hate on them. And I'm not. I have no ill will towards Phil. And I don't think anyone else should either. And also, let's not forget. Look. Each athlete that we root for, for the most part, has some sort of downfall, some sort of issue, right? Let's not pretend Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, and others are the first golfers with controversy off the course. Let's call it Tiger Woods. Let's just call it for what it is. Tiger Woods, by far, has the biggest fan base of any pro athlete in sports, maybe history. He is golf. He is Larger than golf, right? Tiger Woods is almost like a cult following where anytime he is playing, anytime he is in contention, you look at the ratings, you look at the following, you look at the course and where the crowd is, it is about Tiger Woods. Has Tiger Woods been a model citizen throughout his entire career? Has Tiger Woods done questionable things, questionable ethics, questionable actions? He absolutely has. We all know what happened with his infidelity and his former wife. He's had prescription drug issues. He's fallen asleep at the wheel multiple times. He's had scary instances throughout his career. Does anyone stop loving Tiger Woods because he was cheating on his wife? Does anyone stop loving, you know, is hating on Tiger Woods because of his prescription drug problems and struggles, we'll say? Sure, maybe a small, small, small minority, yes. But for the most part, Tiger's fandom 
Tiger's following, you can make the argument, is even stronger now than it was a few years ago because we have seen the struggles of Tiger Woods. He almost, in those in those moments of his lowest, you know, in rock bottom, has looked human. And that human connection where Tiger Woods, for the most part, has been robot. When he was in the, you know, in the 2000s, 20, you know, 2000, let's say 2010, 2009-ish, where he was really at his peak, dominating, winning, he was a robot. There was no, you know, he was never hammed up with the crowd. He wasn't really personable. It was hard to relate to Tiger Woods. In part because he was just focused, winning, 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 winning. Then all of a sudden you see some pitfalls. Then you see some controversy in his life and you realize, oh yeah. At the end of the day, he is just like you and me. He has his own struggles. And that public display, that almost public expose of his life, Almost made it even more easier to root for Tiger. And then when he makes his comeback and wins the Masters eventually in 2019, it was just like a a coronation. It was, I think, emotional for a lot of Tiger fans out there. You can make the argument his greatest win ever. The ones fans remember the most because there was a long time where Tiger was counted and doubted and ruled out. I'll be honest, I was in that crowd. I didn't think Tiger would ever win a major again. But the fact that he got back on top after being so low for so long, I think made it easier to root for Tiger. And those struggles, I think, made it made him more relatable. So, again, Tiger Woods has had his own issues. The pinnacle of golf, the face of golf, the guy of the golf world. Tiger Woods had his own problems, had his own moral, ethical struggles. So, let's just not pretend and sit here and pretend, oh, man, Phil Mickelson, bad guy for golf. He is the only bad guy on uh, that golf's ever seen. I can't believe he's taking money. Plenty of other athletes, plenty of other golfers have had their own struggles off the course, ethically, morally, legally. If you still root for Tiger, if you are still a Tiger fan, I don't see how you, how you can root, uh, root against Phil, how you can boo Phil. Again, I think there'll be a very small minority this week at Brookline that will actually boo Phil. We'll see at 147 when he tees off. I expect the crowds to be pro-Phil, loud, following. And honestly, again, if you were under a rock for, let's say, the last... Eight months. If you just watched golf for the first time this year, have no idea about any of the live golf story, any of the backlash, any of the backstory, and you just watched today, I don't think you'd be able to tell a difference between Phil's following today versus, like, let's say, last year. I think the crowd will be pro-Phil. I think they should be. So I'm curious your thoughts here. I'm pro-Phil. I'm not saying I support Phil supporting, you know, some questionable background. I'm just saying I hold no ill will towards Phil. I'm going to root for him this weekend because I can't pretend. Like, number one, I could do, I could be in his position and say, I'm good with the money. But also, too, I can't pretend like he's the only athlete that's had their own struggles off the course. I will cheer for Phil. I hope he does well. How about yourself? Love to hear your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports and Erica is where we're uh, broadcasting live from. Also, check out the Ryan Hickey Show page on Facebook. You can have the full live stream of the show right there. Throw us a like. You'll get a notification any and every time the show goes live. Plus, check out some good content of the show as well. We're also on Twitter. You can tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show. Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter or on YouTube. Live on the tube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Speaking of the U.S. Open. We have a four-way tie so far early on through the first round of the U.S. Open. Matthew Neesmith, Colin Morikawa, John Rahm, and Sebastian Munoz. All two under par. Roughly, let's say, so far, 
through the uh, the front nine of the U.S. Open. So it's playing tough, but you have some low scores here. So far, Kyle Morikawa, John Rahm, the two big names uh, that are two under. You have Max Homa, a crowd favorite, one under. Roy McIlroy coming off of the RBC Canadian Open last week and kind of been one of the most vocal defenders of the PGA Tour. He's also one under uh, through seven holes. I'm hoping that my, my pick this week is Brooks Kepka. I'm a big Brooks guy. That is my favorite golfer to watch. He has been a U.S. Open machine. Here's a stat for you. Kyle Porter of CBS Sports put this out there, and it's, it's mind-blowing. The last four U.S. Opens, Brooks Kepka has only lost to four golfers. Think about that. The four U.S. Opens, Brooks Kepka has only lost to four golfers. Four golfers total in four years have beat him. He's won twice. Guy's been an absolute machine when it comes to the U.S. Open, and hopefully we'll see him tee off a little bit later this afternoon. Hopefully all his struggles and injury concerns in the past he could put back and get another vintage Brooks Kepka U.S. Open performance. When we return here on the Ryan Hickey Show, Dak Prescott, Kyler Murray, the attention on them is going to be cranked up to the max starting this season. There's one reason for it. I'll explain why when we return. You'll listen to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show on this Thursday morning. If you want a good laugh at my expense, I will direct you towards Instagram and TikTok, both at Ryan Hickey Show on both of those platforms. Ryan Hickey Show on Instagram, Ryan Hickey Show on TikTok, where... Last week, I did a video uh, reviewing some peanut butter. I'm a huge, huge, huge Jeff peanut butter supporter. I have two peanut butters uh, and jelly sandwiches, two a day, every day. That is the staple lunch for literally since I was in kindergarten. So I've had a ton of peanut butter, and it's only been Jif. Well, now with this salmonella recall, I'm out of Jif right now. So I'm trying to find some good peanut butter in the interim. I tried Smucker's peanut butter. If you want to check out that peanut butter review, it is on both those platforms on Instagram and TikTok, Ryan Hickey Show. But also, the reason why you can have a laugh at my expense is let's just say there was not one take to the video. There are a few screw-ups, a few mess-ups, and if you want to get the blooper reel, if you want to get the outtakes, if you will, I compiled those and put them on Instagram and TikTok. So if you want a good laugh at my expense, check out the Ryan Hickey Show on Instagram and TikTok to get a good laugh at uh, me just screwing up and being unable to talk. All right, let's talk quarterbacks here in the NFC. The heat is about to be turned up on two quarterbacks in the NFC starting this year. It's going to be on Dak Prescott. It's going to be Kyler Murray. And look, before we go any further, I get financially they are secure. I know Dak just got paid last year, and I know Kyler, he's about to get paid this summer. He's about to get a mega deal for the Cardinals. Here's the why. Those two quarterbacks are on the hot seat starting this year moving forward. As we know, quarterback is by far the most important position in all sports. It's the biggest key to getting to the Super Bowl and winning the Super Bowl. But now, there's going to be no excuse for the Cardinals and the Cowboys if they don't get to the Super Bowl very soon in the NFC. And now, if there are struggles, if there is continuing to be First round exits, second round exits, postseason struggles. There's no more patience for the for the Cardinals or for the Cowboys because 
The opportunity to make the Super Bowl has never been easier in the NFC than it's about to be. The reason why I say that, the reason why I lay it out, is because CBS Sports last week released their NFC quarterback rankings. They ranked every quarterback in the NFC from best to worst, 1 through 16. I want to read you this very quickly here because I think you will see very soon what stands out and why the pressure is going to be cranked up big time on Dak and Kyler. So very quickly, their rankings, Tom Brady, number one in the NFC, two is Aaron Rodgers, three Matthew Stafford, four Dak, five Kyler. Behind them, Kirk Cousins, six, Jalen Hurts, seven, Carson Wentz, eight, Jameis Winston, nine, Trey Lance, haven't seen him, you know, in really any sort of capacity, 10, Justin Fields, 11, Jared Goff, 12, Daniel Jones, 13, and then they have 14. They have a three-way tie at 14 because I guess they're too nice to say who the worst quarterback in the NFC is, so they put him in a three-person category of Geno Smith, Marcus Mariota, Sam Darnold. What stands out to that list I just listed off for you, one through 14 of the quarterback rankings in the NFC? After Dak and Kyler, they all suck. And the top of the list, the top of the heap, are about to be out of the NFL soon. Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, both could retire after this season. I think Aaron Rodgers is more likely than Tom Brady to retire after this year, but also I think Tom Brady's not going to be back at the Bucs next year. I think he can be with the Dolphins if he does return or somewhere else. So right now, if you are a fan of the Cardinals or if you are a fan of the Cowboys, you look at that list very shortly. In a year or two, your quarterback is about to be the first or the second best quarterback in the NFC. There is no excuse for either the Cardinals or the Cowboys, either one, to not be not making regular trips to the Super Bowl very shortly. And it goes back. If Dak is struggling still to get to the big game, if Kyler shows you he can't really get it done in the postseason, it's time to move on. I don't care if you gave him contract extensions recently. You have to take advantage of what is a vacuum at the top of the NFC. The three best teams... In this year, the Packers, the Buccaneers, the Rams, all built for short-term success. Again, I think Rodgers at the door very soon. Tom Brady's at the door uh, very soon, at least at Tab Bay. So two of the three best teams in the NFC, I think next year, will be knocked down dramatically because their quarterbacks either will be elsewhere or retired. The Rams, I love the Rams. I like Matthew Stafford. They are built for a three-year window. Right? They are going all in and let's say what is a four-year window that started last year. They won a Super Bowl in year number one. So they have a very short lifespan to capitalize and win and go to the Super Bowl and win as many as they can in a very, very, very short amount of time. After that, what's the excuse for the Cowboys and the Cardinals not making it? You have Dak, you have Kyler. Are you really going to tell me? That Jalen Hurts is going to stand in the way of the Cowboys getting to the Super Bowl? Are we really going to discuss Kirk Cousins getting the best of Kyler Murray in a playoff game? Carson Wentz? Jameis Winston? Trey Lance? This is your chance for the Cowboys and the Cardinals. You have to capitalize. This NFC is pathetic. It's pathetic. Again, This year, we can exclude because there's still the three best teams by far. Packers, Rams, and uh, Packers, Rams, and the Buccaneers. Excuse me. They still all have quarterbacks that are playing at a high level. But again, two of the three are about to uh, exit the league. And now if you're Dak and you're Kyler, you are 
the best, if not second best quarterback in the NFC. Quarterback is essential to having success in the playoffs. Quarterback is essential to making a run to the playoffs. What quarterback on that list I just gave you is truly scaring you? What quarterback on that list you identify that says, oh, well, they're better than Dak. They're going to give us a run for the money. Uh, Kyler mm, doesn't have the quarterback advantage there. You know, the Cardinals don't stand a chance against the Saints with Jameis Winston or the Commanders with Carson Wentz. This list is disgusting for quarterbacks in the NFC. And next year, you're going to have Dak and Kyler in the top three. Matthew Stafford, maybe one, two, or three in that mix as well. Those are the top three quarterbacks in the NFC. If you are not, if we're not even talking NFC title game, it's time to go. It's time to move on. It's time to bring someone else in because you need to take advantage of what I'm sure will be not a very long window of bad quarterback playing the NFC. Like, if you look at the AFC list compared to the NFC list, look, I get Deshaun Watson and his actions off the field. If we look at just on-the-field performance, which is what CBS Sports is looking at here, CBS Sports has Deshaun Watson ranked as the seventh-best quarterback in the AFC. You look at a gauntlet in the AFC filled with young quarterbacks. Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, Joe Burrow, Deshaun Watson, Justin Herbert. You have Russell Wilson coming on over and taking over a Broncos team that's very talented. You have Derek Carr getting better weapons. You have, you have Lamar Jackson, an MVP winner. You have all of these players, all these young quarterbacks that are gearing up to make a run in a deep AFC, and they're going to be there for a long time. They had Deshaun Watson, CBS Sports did, ranked as the seventh best quarterback in the AFC. The seventh best quarterback in the NFC is Jalen Hurts. Is there any, any talent comparison between Jalen Hurts and Deshaun Watson? The answer is absolutely not. That right there should highlight how big of a gap it is between the AFC and the NFC. It is almost a cakewalk. Again, starting really next year, when Brady and Rodgers are leaving their respective teams, it's a cakewalk to the at least the NFC title game if you're either the Cardinals or the Cowboys. And if you, again, come up short in the postseason like the Cowboys have done, if you, again, are the are Steve Kime and you watch Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray melt after Thanksgiving, play their worst football in December and January, it's time to pull the plug. I don't care you gave both if you're Steve Kime, both contract extensions. You got to move on. You gotta take advantage of this window. If you're Jerry Jones, I get you love Dak. I get there's all this drama about his contract over the years, a lot of fighting, and eventually you got it done. You gotta pull the plug if the Cowboys, yet again, especially at home, are getting bounced in the first round and losing to lesser quarterbacks like they did this past year in Jimmy Garoppolo and the 49ers. This is the time to really put all your chips in. And cash in and go all in on making Super Bowl runs. Because the NFC will never be easier. Never be easier. Then it's about to be, let's say, in 2023. The pressure's on. Those quarterbacks are on the hot seat. If you can't get it done, it's time to find someone else who can. And guess what? And that loaded crop of AFC quarterbacks, you know what's going to happen very soon? They're going to see the writing on the wall. They're going to realize, am I really going to bang my head against the wall in the AFC? Facing, like you got the possibility, let's say, if you're any quarterback in the AFC, where your first round matchup is Joe Burrow, your second round matchup is, let's say, I don't know, Russell Wilson, and your third round matchup could be either Josh Allen or Patrick Mahomes. Why on earth? 
let's say if you're, let's just say Lamar Jackson or Justin Herbert, where you could rea- in reality face Russell Wilson, Patrick Holmes, Josh Allen in the three games to get to the Super Bowl, or you look across the other side of the conference and you see you could be going against Jameis Winston, Kirk Cousins, and I don't know, maybe Matthew Stafford next year. Which route are you taking? Hell, even put Dak or Kyler in there, you would take facing Dak, Kyler, and Matthew Stafford, the three best quarterbacks in the NFC next year, and that's an easier route than, let's say, facing what you could face in the AFC. So I think pretty soon, if you're the Vikings, if you're the Eagles, if you are even the, the, the Packers or the Buccaneers who are going to need quarterbacks soon, you look and say, shoot. This NFC is wide open. If Dak and Kyler are the two best quarterbacks in the NFC, you're going to feel pretty good about your chance of getting by them. Because again, so far in their careers, we have not seen either play well in the playoffs. We have not seen either really play well in the big moments down the stretch. So you can go pick off, I don't know, a Lamar Jackson, a Joe Burrow, a Justin Herbert. Any of those quarterbacks where their owners are either too cheap or unwilling to pay, you can get them on your team in the NFC. You are by far the favorite in that conference. That list by uh, by CBS Sports ranking all uh, 16 quarterbacks in the NFC. And you see, you talk about a dramatic fall from five. When you go from Brady Rogers, Dak, Kyler, one through five, to then just a cliff. We're talking, you know, the Andes Mountains here from top of the peak top quarterbacks to now. We're talking about... Kirk Cousins, Jalen Hurts, Carson Wentz as being the next best. Oof, that is a plunge. And you look at the top, you're about to see another plunge when Brady and Rodgers retire and or leave the NFL or leave their team go somewhere else. It is about to be extremely weak quarterback-wise in the NFC. And if you're the Cowboys and you're the Cardinals, you have your guy you think you can win. Now we're about to see if that's the case. We are about to see if Kyler Murray is worth the money, and we're about to see if Dak Prescott is worth the money, because now it will never be easier to make this Super Bowl than right now in the NFC, let's say starting 2023. The pressure's on. They're on the hot seat. I know they just got paid. Their financial future secure. But right now, that is subject to change if you continue to struggle in the postseason against this crop of quarterbacks. My goodness. So, when we return here on the Ryan Hickey Show, the Warriors tonight are looking to win their fourth title. Who has the most to gain from winning a championship this year in the NBA? We'll discuss who that is when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. As always, the 10 o'clock hour is sponsored by LC Designs. Charcuterie boards are perfect for all occasions. So make sure your guests, if you're hosting a party, having a picnic, just, hell, chilling on a nice Thursday afternoon, wanting to have a little meat and cheese in your face. Make sure your guests are happily fed with some delicious and aesthetically pleasing charcuterie boards made by... Lauren Clark herself. So make sure you check out lcdesignsnyc.com, lcdesignsnyc.com for more information. 
So as always, around this time of the NBA Finals, Game 6, the Warriors could win their fourth title tonight. Celtics looking to get two more wins and win their 18th championship in uh, their storied history. There's always legacy talk when it comes to a championship about to be won. So when we look at whether the Warriors win tonight or the the Celtics win uh, two more games and win their title, who stands to benefit the most from winning a championship? Whose legacy would be benefited the most by winning this title? For me, it's not Steph Curry. It's not Klay Thompson. It's not Draymond Green. It's not Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown or Ime Odoka. The one who stands to gain the most, the one whose legacy will have the biggest impact in a positive way by winning another title, this title, it's Steve Kerr. It's Steve Kerr, Warriors head coach. Because for the first time in his career, if Steve Kerr wins this championship, he would actually get credit for winning a title. His coaching would finally get the recognition it deserves for the tremendous job he has done. Fair or not, the first three titles in the Warriors dynasty give Kerr no credit. Basically, don't count for Steve Kerr's uh, legacy. But if he can lay this team to the finals, we are now talking about Steve Kerr in a different light. We are talking about putting himself on a short list with some of the greatest coaches in NBA history. Those four titles he would have won if he wins Game 6 tonight or Game 7 on Sunday night. There would be just five coaches in NBA history with more titles than Steve Kerr. And we are talking about Steve Kerr in the conversation for one of the greatest coaches in NBA history. And again, he's not going anywhere anytime soon. This would by far, winning a title this year, be his greatest coaching job ever. Forget about the 73-win season where I know they lost in the finals but had a record number of wins in the regular season. Forget about winning back-to-back titles with Kevin Durant or getting the Splash Brothers kind of off the ground in winning their first title in 2014-2015. This by far, by far, would be Steve Kerr's greatest coaching job of his career. You look at what he would have to overcome in order to win a title. He would be able to overcome... Statistically, Steph Curry's worst shooting season of his career. I get the numbers are still pretty damn good, right? Steph Curry this year from three, 38%. And a normal year, that's pretty good for most players. Steph Curry, though, his career three-point average never has sunk below in a full season below 41%. Facts are facts. I get it's still good, but the, the reality is this was Steph Curry's worst three-point shooting year. Also, he missed time towards the end of the year with a foot injury. They kind of had the Warriors in a little bit of a tailspin heading into the playoffs. So he was able to overcome Steph Curry injury and also his worst shooting season of his career. He was able to overcome Klay Thompson working his way back after missing two and a half years worth of time because of injuries. Whether it was a torn ACL in the 2019 Finals in Game 6, whether it was the ruptured Achilles working his way back from the torn ACL, he missed two and a half years of game action, returned in early January. The fact that you could still win a title with, with Klay Thompson, nowhere near the Klay Thompson that we last saw him on the court in 2019, it's impressive as hell. You look at Draymond Green. The heart and soul of this team, right? The energizer bunny, the guy who is the emotional leader, the vocal leader of this squad. He missed half the year. Forget about what he's doing in the finals or really not doing in the finals. This guy missed basically half the season with a back injury. 
and the Warriors were still able to tread water enough to get the third seed in, in the uh, Western Conference. So you took, you look at your three best players, right? Where this dynasty, this decade-long dynasty, if you will, hasn't built around the three cornerstones in Clay, in Steph, in Draymond. All three in different areas have had basically career lows, whether it's injury-related, whether it's performance-related, or whether it's both. Steve Kerr winning a title with those three pillars being older and struggling in some capacity would be impressive. But it's not just the fact that you were able to overcome struggles and injuries to win a title. It's also his coaching have a po- uh, his coaching having a positive impact on the rest of the lineup. Look at Andrew Wiggins. He has turned Andrew Wiggins from a bust, from a write-off, from a guy that is a losing player, right? Who in Minnesota, he could score points, sure. But was that what was that doing for wins? Nothing. He has been able to turn that guy and flip his label around into a reliable contributor. Into someone that is playing hard on both sides of the floor. He has turned Andrew Wiggins into now one of the best two-way wings in the NBA. And now getting reliable, consistent contributions from Andrew Wiggins in the biggest games of the season. Like his playoff, his playoff play has been consistent and he has been one of the most important warriors in this stretch. Steph has been great. You can make the argument the second most important, second most impactful player in this postseason. Behind Steph Curry for the Warriors has been Andrew Wiggins. A large part of that success has to be credited towards Steve Kerr for getting the most out of Andrew Wiggins, for tapping into that talent that Minnesota struggled to do for a decade and making his contributions lead to victories on the scoreboard. Steve Kerr has helped make, uh, help, helped make Andrew Wiggins a reliable contributor. But it's not just Wiggins that he's developed. He's taken Jordan Poole's game to a, a borderline star level. I get he's, he's struggling and he's not as explosive and impressive in the finals as he was early in the postseason. But this was a guy in Jordan Poole. I know it's been hammered home a ton. He was in the G League last year trying to find his way, trying to find his game. And Steve Kerr was able to develop Jordan Poole's game to this point where when Steph Curry missed the final three weeks of the regular season with that foot injury, Jordan Poole was able to step in and play really well. Average, I believe it was off the top of my head, 26 points in that three-week span when Steph Curry was out. He was able to get the best out of Jordan Poole and make him a reliable contributor. Then, in the postseason... When they're still trying to work Steph Curry back, when they're still trying to get that foot back to 100%, Jordan Poole started the first few games in the playoffs, and he played really well. He played really well and made it easier for Steph and took pressure off of Steph to where he could come off the bench, play less minutes, and even if he had a few rusty games where he was trying to get his game back, that was okay. They didn't. The Warriors did not need Steph Curry to be 43.10 rebound game four Steph Curry like we saw in the finals every night. Jordan Poole is able to become a third splash brother, make some big-time shots, and pick up the slack when Steph was hurt and or working his way back from injury. So Steve Kerr has been able to develop Andrew Wiggins into one of the most reliable contributors on the Warriors. He's been able to develop Jordan Poole's game from G League last year to now, you know, important playoff piece. He's gotten meaningful minutes and important minutes from Kevon Looney, who now has been, again, a very important piece, a very important cog in this Warriors rotation where he's been a beast on the glass, grabbing offensive rebounds. Sure, he's scoring a little bit here and there, dishing out rebounds, but he is uh, dishing out assists. He has played some meaningful uh, minutes. He's made some big-time contributions on both ends of the floor. And again, 
That is for Steve Kerr's player development. One of the most impressive parts about the Warriors is not only that they're winning. Again, they're winning with almost a brand new cast. A lot of the guys now that are contributing that are important keys to this team were not there in the first dynasty run, if you will, uh, five years ago. It's younger players. He's getting contributions from unheralded second-round picks and undrafted free agents and getting big-time contributions from them. That is, that is player development, and that is so impressive from Steve Kerr. And for me, that's why I think his legacy is the one that stands to gain the most. Of any, any player, any coach in, this, uh, in these finals, it's Steve Kerr. And think about it. You had a game in game number five in which Steve Kerr and the Warriors were able to win in part when Steph Curry had an all-time bad performance. He was 0 of 9 from 3 in game number 5. First time in his playoff career he has not hit a 3. First time in 233 straight games he had not hit a 3. You have Draymond Green, your heart and soul, getting rattled by the crowd in Boston. This is a guy who usually does the rattling, does the intimidating, gets under the skin of opponents. And Draymond Green in this finals so far through five games, it's been the opposite. It's like the Celtics players, it's the Celtics fans that have really gotten in his head. And really even Draymond Green himself got his own got it in his own head after those game two comments about how the officiating gives him preferential treatment over other players. He has looked shaken. He has looked rattled. His confidence has gone down and he at one point had to be benched in game four with the Warriors season on the line. In the fourth quarter when you're down two games to one in Boston, your season on the line. You're not overcoming a 3 one deficit to the Celtics team. Season on the line, fourth quarter on the road in Boston. Draymond Green was benched. Think about how bad you got to be for Steve Kerr to have no faith in you in that moment. Now they put up offensive defense subs late in the game, but Draymond Green was benched for the majority of the fourth quarter. That's credit to Steve Kerr for number one, realizing a change has to be made. Number two, not being afraid to make that change. And number three, getting the most out of Draymond to where in game five, who's a more reliable contributor. But so far, the Warriors are up 3-2 in the NBA Finals. One win away from their fourth championship with Seth Curry having a career bad game in game number five. With Draymond Green getting rattled and getting in his own head through the NBA Finals so far. And Jordan Poole, one of the Splash Brothers we hit on, one of the most impactful players leading into these finals, being a non-factor. Hitting a few shots, you know, a few half-court shots at the end of the third quarter. Otherwise, not really being a main contributor. Not really having a big impact. Not even playing a lot of minutes at all in order to, uh, in order to, you know, to take over a game. So, so far, right, when Steve Kerr, a three-time finals winner, a f- this is now his sixth finals appearance. But really, unfortunately, fair or not, his accomplishments have been overlooked at this point. Excuse me. In part because the talent gets credit. Year number one, they won the title 14-15. It's Steph, it's Clay, it's Draymond, this fun, uh, fun uh, young team. They just go on a rampage and win, and they beat a depleted Cavs team when LeBron was the hero, but no one else was healthy enough to contribute around them. Then, obviously, we know they get Kevin Durant after that 73-win season. Then it's just the unfair Warriors. KD, Steph, Clay, they're going to win no matter what. It was a major disappointment, major fail. If they didn't win a title, which they won two in the third one, they would have won. I think, if not for the injuries. But you see, Steph Kerr, uh, Steve Kerr has gotten zero credit because for the most part, it's been about the talent. It, w- it would have been a failure if the Warriors didn't win 
those titles, the three they did in that dynastic run because they were just so much more talented, so much better than everyone else in the league. Now, should he get more credit for the offense? Absolutely, he didn't. Should he get more credit for helping to integrate uh, Kevin Durant into that lineup? Absolutely, he doesn't. He had zero credit for the first three titles. Now, though, you win a title this year. You win a title tonight. I don't want to say it validates the first three, but it makes those first three look a hell of a lot more impressive and gives Steve Kerr retroactive respect that he deserves. Like you look at the list right now. If he gets title number four, either tonight or Sunday, I mentioned before there's only five other head coaches that would have more titles than Steve Kerr. Those five coaches, Phil Jackson, legendary coach, Red Auerbach, legend, Pat Riley, immortal, Greg Popovich, all-time great, John Kunla. That's it. That's the list that would have more titles than Steve Kerr. All-time greats. And Steve Kerr would have to be in that conversation. This title tonight does more for Steve Kerr's legacy than any other player or coach in the finals. Steph Curry's legacy has already been set. I don't want to hear about Steph Curry needing a finals MVP baloney. The guy has changed the game. His legacy is changing the entire way the sport is played with three-point shot. He has revolutionized the game. He has changed the way players approach the game. He has changed the way the game is played. He has changed the way teams build their rosters. Everything that right now we see in today's game has been impacted by Steph Curry. He's never going to be MJ. He's never going to be LeBron. Their physical dominance was different. But Steph Curry changed the way the game is played. He doesn't need another finals championship. He doesn't need another finals MVP to validate that. It's already set in stone. Klay Thompson, been great. His legacy is what it is. Draymond Green, same thing. Ime Udoka, in his first year's title, that would be tremendous. But his career is so young and still so, so much more to go that he has a long way to build that legacy. Jason Tatum, sure, and make his career a hell of a lot easier and take a lot of pressure off of him if he's able to win a championship. And that would probably cement his legacy or cement, I should not legacy, cement his status as one of the best players in the NBA right now. Kind of similar to the way that it helped Giannis cement his status as the best player in the NBA when he won a title, people look differently. But still, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown are so young that they'll have other chances and they have so much more uh, room to grow in their legacies and their careers that one championship isn't making them. It's not. The one who stands to gain the most from winning a title, it's Steve Kern for me. It's not even close. How about yourself here? Whose legacy stands to gain the most by winning this NBA Finals? I say Steve Kern. Do you agree? Or do you think it's Steph? I think it's Jason Tatum, Ime Doka, whoever. Love to hear your thoughts here. Facebook Worldwide Sports Network. You can tweet me at Ryan underscore Hickey, uh, or sorry, Ryan Hickey Show, or Ryan underscore Hickey, the number three. Uh, that's my personal Twitter. If you want to interact with the show handle, that is at Ryan Hickey Show. If you want to check out Instagram and or TikTok, if you want to see a funny outtake video that I just posted there last night about me screwing up uh, a peanut butter review of Smuckers, take a look and take a listen and take a laugh at my expense. It's very brutal. I'm awful on camera. Um, and there was a lot of outtakes that I think would get you laughing pretty well. So if you want to take a laugh at my expense, Instagram, TikTok, Ryan Hickey Show is where you can check that out. If you want to answer the questions we're talking about here, whose legacy stands to gain the most, Facebook Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter, Ryan Hickey Show, YouTube, check us out, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, there's been one quarterback 
that for me, the hype train has left the station and it's out of control. We got the latest example yesterday to explain who that is and why I'm nervous, actually, that this quarterback's being overhyped. We'll discuss why when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show with you on this Thursday morning. We appreciate you making us a part of your Thursday right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. All right. So let's get into a discussion that I think has gotten out of control. The hype train for Justin Herbert, I think, has left the station. There's one thing that bothers me when it comes to quarterback discussion. I feel like sometimes there's a... There's not one consensus. There's there's different levels of, of praise or criticism for different quarterbacks, and that drives me crazy. Some are, are praised even though they have faults. Others are, I think, unfairly criticized when they have more success than they want to give credit for. The unbalanced scales when it comes to how we either praise or criticize quarterbacks drives me insane. I think we are seeing it now with Justin Herbert. I think he has been the most overhyped quarterback this offseason. I'm not saying he's a bad quarterback. I'm not saying the guy stinks. He's a very good quarterback. And I think he's going to be a very good quarterback this year. But what I've been seeing, what I've been reading and listening to this offseason, I think the expectations for Justin Herbert are too high. I think for me, again, we have seen a lot of discussion about Justin Herbert. He's been a hot MVP candidate. The Chargers have been a hot team. I feel like right now the expectations for Justin Herbert are that people think he's going to be Patrick Mahomes in 2018. 50 touchdown passes, MVP. Or 2019 Lamar Jackson, where he was unstoppable and by far the best quarterback and best player in the NFL that season. And I think because those standards are so high, there's going to be a lot of disappointed people this year after the season's over when Justin Herbert doesn't reach those highs. And that's okay. He doesn't have to be 2018 Patrick Holmes or 2019 Lamar Jackson. When I look at Justin Herbert, when I look at the Chargers specifically this year, there's only one goal in my mind. Make the playoffs. The only goal in 2022, the only objective, the only way to measure success or failure, I think is a playoff berth. If you look at the AFC, this conference is grueling. Every single team that felt like had some sort of major improvement to get better. Bills add Von Miller. They already have a very loaded team. The uh, the Bengals add to their offensive line. They shore up their biggest weakness after making an appearance in the Super Bowl. The Browns, will see what Deshaun Watson's like this year, but the Browns got a big-time upgrade at quarterback on the field in Deshaun Watson. The Ravens are going to be healthier this year than they were last year with Lamar Jackson. You have the Chiefs. I know they still they traded away Tyreek Hill. You still have uh, Patrick Holmes. You still have Andy Reid. The Raiders went all out to get Devontae Adams. The Broncos got Russell Wilson. This AFC is a grueling nightmare for any quarterback to get through. And just look at the AFC West. It's a gauntlet, man. Raiders, Chargers, Broncos, Chiefs. That is awful. In terms of how hard it's going to be. That is by far the toughest division in the NFL. So when you look at how tough just the Chargers division is. When you look at how grueling. 
how elite the quarterback play is in the AFC overall. For me, just making the playoffs in 2022, finally getting Justin Herbert playing meaningful January football, it's the only goal. And if you make the playoffs, I don't care if Justin Herbert has 10 touchdowns or 60 touchdowns. It's his success. But right now, you're looking at the hype of Justin Herbert. The bar is not playoffs. The bar is like MVP. The bar is like best player in the NFL. And that's asking a lot. I think it's asking too much for a player that hasn't really accomplished anything yet. He's had two really good years. 30-plus touchdowns in each of his first few seasons. He has been better than, honestly, coming out of college, I could ever imagine. I'll be honest. But also with that said, let's let Justin Herbert maybe develop a little bit more before putting these unreal expectations on him. And the latest example that I think are unfair, unrealistic expectations for Justin Herbert this year came from Phil Simms. NBC Sports, Phil Simms this offseason just finished releasing his top 40 list of quarterbacks heading to 2022. He ranked the top 40 quarterbacks of this year, and he had Justin Herbert third. He had Josh Allen one, he had Patrick Holmes two, and then right there at number three is Justin Herbert. And I'm sorry, I think that's absurd. I think it's absolutely absurd to have Justin Herbert third on that list. Quickly, off the top of my head, I put Joe Burrow above Justin Herbert. I put Aaron Rodgers. I put Tom Brady. I put Russell Wilson right now above Justin Herbert uh, in terms of quarterback rankings. But here we are going and hyping up Justin Herbert to have this insane monster MVP-type season. Now, I just thought, I think you're asking too much. But it's not just Phil Simms. How about Peter King? Peter King last month put a power rankings system out, uh, or put a power rankings out, I should say, not system. It's his own system. Power rankings out of all 32 NFL teams heading to training camp. Peter King. Someone who's mild-mannered, very well-respected, doesn't really fall into the hyperbolic chamber um, as much as others. He had the Chargers as the second-best team in the NFL. Number two. I don't even have the Chargers number two in their own division. I think the Chiefs are still better. I think the Broncos right now are better than the Chargers. But here we are seeing the hype train of LA, seeing the hype train of uh, the Chargers running off the rails. Peter King, one of the most respected, down the middle, doesn't really fall into the you know overreaction chamber, has the Chargers as the second best team heading into 2022. Phil Simms has Justin Herbert, the third best quarterback in all the NFL. That to me is absurd. That to me is trying to build up Justin Herbert only to be disappointed. Like, for whatever reason, Justin Herbert has been the darling of the offseason. Look, I'm not saying he's bad. He's very good. But my question comes in and why we're getting so enamored and so obsessed and putting these, I think, unreal expectations on Justin Herbert. It's like we forget about all the other greatness in just the AFC alone. Did we forget about what Joe Burrow did? We're playing behind one of the worst offensive lines in the NFL. He was one of the most sacked quarterbacks in 2021. Took this Bengals team to the Super Bowl. Had a great season in year two. Do we think he's going to suck next year? Do we think he's not going to get any better now that he has protection in front of him in the offensive line? Now that Jamar Chase is going to be in year number two, you still have T. Higgins, you still have Tyler Boyd, you still have Joe Mixon. Joe Burrow's only going to get better, I think. Do we forget about how great he was in the playoffs? 
Like, let, let's not forget about Joe. Why isn't Joe Burrow getting this much hype, this much attention, this much praise going into 2022 when he, unlike Justin Herbert, actually accomplished something in getting the Bengals to the Super Bowl and winning and playing really well in big games? Do we, do we think Russell Wilson going uh, to a team now where he has arguably the best offensive supporting cast around him, do you think he's going to fall flat in his face? Where for the first time in his career, he has a head coach that actually embraces offense, that actually wants to play to Russell Wilson's strengths. Do we think he's just going to fall flat on his face in Denver? I don't. Josh Allen, is he going to stink this year? Patrick Mahomes, is he going to just fall off a cliff because Tyree Kill is no longer there? Look, I can't sit here and t- I'm not saying Justin Herbert's a bad quarterback. I'm not saying he's even a decent quarterback. He is a very good quarterback so far through two years in the NFL. I like the offseason the Chargers had. I like Brandon Staley's aggressiveness. I like the supporting cast Justin Herbert has around him on the offensive end. With that said, though, I think the hype for Herbert this year has gotten to a point where it's unrealistic. Saying he's the third best quarterback in the NFL, having the Chargers as the second best team in the NFL, I think is unfair and putting unrealistic expectations on a quarterback that, fair or not, has not accomplished anything so far in this league. He's played great individually, and sure, I get Week 18, we all watched that Sunday night game against the Raiders, in which he put up some big numbers, and the Raiders won on a walk-off field goal in overtime. But there's other games where Justin Herbert struggled mightily that cost the Chargers a playoff position. They got blown out by the Texans late in the year. He struggled through two picks against the Patriots in a bad loss at home. He struggled against the Minnesota Vikings. Justin Herbert has had his fair share of bad games. Let's not let, get, let's not let recency bias here. The last game we saw of Justin Herbert in uh, Las Vegas against the Chargers make him out to be this all-time great quarterback than he's really, you know, make him better out to be than he really is. The AFC is so brutal. The AFC West is so deep and loaded with quarterback talent. Like, I, I just can't sit here and say Justin Herbert, MVP candidate. Chargers, best team in the AFC or second best team in the AFC. I can't do it. I got to see it. There's, other, there's plenty of quarterbacks and there's plenty of situations where I don't have to see it to believe it. Last year, for example, I picked the Rams to win the Super Bowl. I thought Matthew Stafford was a missing piece for L.A., before the season even started preseason, Rams my Super Bowl pick. Guess what? That worked out pretty well. Even though a lot of people didn't see Matthew Stafford having a lot of success in Detroit, I really thought he was better than what he got credit for and was going to be a perfect fit in that Trump McVay offense. Example A of a quarterback being unfairly judged because of the circumstances that were surrounding him. Matthew Stafford was with a bad team, with a bad line, bad coaching staff in Detroit. People want to point to his record against winning teams or his lack of playoff success or just lack of getting the the Lions to the playoffs. Can we see how stupid that is when you actually put Matthew Stafford in a good situation? Guess what? He made some of the biggest throws of the season in order for the Rams to win the Super Bowl. Deshaun Watson. Now, it's not everyone, but there's talks, and I've been on the radio, on CBS Sports Radio, on here, where I've had arguments with callers and fans that tried to poo-poo Deshaun Watson and say he's not very good because when he last played in 2020, the Texans were 4-12. and It's that unfair expectation, that unfair judgment for one quarterback in saying he's not as good as he truly is versus hyping up another who, to me, hasn't really accomplished anything in the NFL, Justin Herbert, that drives me bonkers. 
It's the, the, t the scales that are constantly sliding that drives me insane. All I want is consistency. And I don't think we have that. And I think Justin Herbert's the latest example of it. His hype train has left the station. It's a runaway train now. It's going off the tracks. Chris Sims is all in. Peter King's drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm not. My expectation for the Chargers and Justin Herbert make the playoffs. In a brutal AFC, in a very tough division, make the playoffs. Not MVP, not best player in the NFL, not 2018 Patrick Holmes-like or 2019 Lamar Jackson-like. Make the playoffs. That is it. But I feel like those expectations are, are bare minimum. No one's saying that. How about you? What are your expectations for Justin Herbert going into this year? Is he the most overhyped quarterback heading into the 2022 season? Love to your thoughts here on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. You can tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show or check us out on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, as we have the U.S. Open going, let me update you quickly on the leaderboard here. Apologies, I don't know if you can see it on the stream. On the stream, doesn't look like it, but got the U.S. Open going on in the background. Matthew Neesmith, Colin Morikawa, Stuart Hagestad, amateur. All right now, three under. Those are your leaders. Roy McIlwain having a, a strong now push. He is two under through 11. You have John Rahm sitting at one under. Max Homa, a fan favorite, sitting at one under. Jordan Spieth has not gone off to uh, the best start. Let's see where Spieth is. He was at 1.3 over. He really struggled, then got it to, to one over. Will Zell Torres so far is one over. Um, Jordan Spieth right now, two over through 11. So right now, the U.S. Open course, right? They play strong. They want to have low scores. Right now, the leaders, three-way tie, Kyle Morikawa, your uh, co-leader at three under par uh, through the front nine. Brooks Kepka, my guy, my pick to win the U.S. Open. He'll tee off later on. Phil Mickelson will get on the course 147 as well. That's obviously going to be a polarizing player. Don't think he should get booed, and I don't think he will either. I think the fans will give Phil a warm greeting, which he deserves. When we return here, game six is tonight. This, to me, has a Jason Tatum game written all over to explain why when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show Worlds Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Happy Thursday to you. Thanks so much for making us a part of your morning. Game six tonight. I think the Celtics are winning game six, protecting home court, and send this game, send this series back to the Bay for a game seven. Because I think tonight we are getting a Jason Tatum game. I think he's taking over the game. I think he's going to lead the Celtics to victory. And when I say Jason Tatum game, I'm not talking about him scoring 40 points to take, you know, to drag this team to victory. I'm not talking about another 46 point performance like he had in game uh in game 6 in Milwaukee with the Celtics down 3-2 in the second round. I'm talking about a Jason Tatum game where he does two things. Takes care of the basketball, aka not turn it over, and is a playmaker on offense. I think more importantly, the two most important stats to focus on tonight if you're the Celtics. Turnovers, assists. And if you're Jason Tatum, those are by far the two most important stats you have to look at. I think that's going to be the key to victory tonight for Boston. You play clean, crisp basketball. You don't turn the ball over when you're on offense. And even if you're not scoring, you work as a facilitator. This Celtics team is winning tonight in game six. 
Hey, the, the formula to win is not crazy. The Celtics, for me, have really kind of shot the, themselves in the foot this entire series with mistakes, with lacks of focus, with bad turnovers, with bad shot selection. All you really got to do is if you play clean, crisp basketball, limit the turnovers, move the ball, especially if you're Jason Tatum, and you're a playmaker. Forget about score. If you're a playmaker, those are the keys to, to me to winning game six tonight and extending the series to a game number seven. It starts with Jason Tatum. He is the star of the team. First team All-NBA. The team does follow in the tracks of their leader, of their best player. Jason Tatum needs to set the tone tonight, and by doing so, play make and keep the ball secure. The Celtics don't need Jason Tatum to score 46 points tonight in order to win. They don't. Because they have won games in, the, in these finals when Jason Tatum has gone 3-17 from the floor. It's why, for me, the more important number for Tatum tonight is not points, it's assists. If he can still get the offense rolling, if he could still open up shots and better looks for Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown and Al Horford and maybe get Robert Williams on some mismatches down low, that, to me, his ability to create offense for others, his ability to take the attention of the Warriors defense on him and then find the open guy, get him better looks, that, to me, is the biggest key for the Celtics offense to get going here in game number six. His playmaking, his assist numbers, to me, are even more important than the actual point total that Jason Tatum scores. Because, again, when you go 317 from the floor but have 13 assists, this Celtics team is deep enough and talented enough to still get contributions elsewhere in order to win. So as long as Jason Tatum tonight is a playmaker on offense, not a scorer, a playmaker, that means a big key in how the Celtics are going to win game number six. And also, simply, don't turn the ball over, man. If you don't give the Warriors extra possessions, if you don't allow them to get fast breaks and two-on-ones and three-on-twos, and turn your poor turnovers into transition offense and points, the Celtics are winning tonight in Game 6. As long as they don't give away freebies like they have, they are winning. Because the Celtics have showed you, when they have played their best game, when they just play clean, crisp basketball, forget about even playing at your best. If you just eliminate the mistakes, you are the better team and you are winning. Game 3 is a perfect example. That was by far their cleanest and I thought most crisp game from start to finish. They won handily. Why? Because they're the better team. When they're not giving the Warriors second, third opportunities, when they're rebounding the ball at their size advantage, and when they are just moving the ball in offense, getting good shots, not settling for tough shots, this team, to me, is the better team, and they are going to win the finals. That starts tonight, and it starts with Jason Tatum. Assist numbers, turnover numbers, the two big stats to look at for Tatum and the Celtics offense. As long as he's playmaking, as long as he's getting open looks, and even if he's not scoring, but finding smart, finding, uh, finding Brown, getting them better looks, this Celtics team is going to win. And as long as he, he specifically is not turning the ball over, I think that's contagious. When your stars turn it over, I think that does uh, lead to other players on the team turning the ball over. The Celtics are going to win this game. Again, we've seen Jason Tatum, yes, have a 46-point outburst. We know that is in him to have a big game and carry this team. It's not necessary, though. The Warriors needed Steph Curry's Game 4 performance of 43 points and 10 rebounds. They needed that. With their season on the line, they needed their star player to go off and carry the team. He did. And credit to the Warriors, the next game, they picked Steph Curry up and he had a bad game. The Celtics don't need a similar Game 4 Steph Curry-like performance from Jason Tatum tonight in Game 6. They don't. All they need is clean, crisp 
basketball. And the Celtics have been a very up-and-down, inconsistent team. That, in part, also has to do with Jason Tatum. Right? A team goes as their best player goes more often than not. Tatum this postseason has been up and down. Shooting-wise, that has led to the Celtics being up and down this postseason. He's had issues with turnovers. He leads all players in the finals at 18 turnovers. He leads all players in the NBA with 95 turnovers this postseason, which is a record for turnovers in a single postseason. Celtics have had turnover issues in part because their best player is turning it over, is giving it away, fumbling the basketball. I do think... Tatum is able to secure the ball. It sets a tone for the Celtics going the rest of the way, and it allows them to play better on offense. If not, if the turnover issues persist, if Tatum is struggling but also not, you know, dishing out the rocket and not setting others up, the Celtics are losing. They're losing. And the Warriors are going to win their fourth title. It's going to be in Boston. It's going to be very painful. And the Warriors dynasty is going to continue, and they're going to get a lot of praise. The Celtics, to me, have been the better team. The story of this finals, of these finals, has been the Celtics blowing opportunities more than the Warriors playing well. I'm not saying the Warriors haven't played well. They have. Seth Curry in Game 4 is tremendous, and he won them that game. And the Warriors, whether it's Andrew Wiggins, whether it's Klay Thompson at times, whether it's even Draymond Green, to their credit, they have made plays when it counted. But I feel so far through five games watching this series, like the Celtics have really shot themselves in the foot. Bad turnovers, getting out-rebounded, and not being the more physical team despite having the size and strength advantage. Just lacks of focus at times. Not seeing like you have a fire under you. Not seeming to take the moment um, and run with it. Bad shot selection. Like There's been a lot of different areas where I think the Celtics have have been subpar and been their own worst enemy. So this is a time where you just got to play clean basketball. And that's why, for me, the biggest key is not Jason Tatum scoring 40 points. It's not Jalen Brown, you know, having a big, efficient night of, let's say, 25 and 10. Or Marcus Smart going for 25 points. The key to victory tonight for the Celtics is very simple. The game plan doesn't have to be extravagant. It's really, honestly, I hate to boil it down here, but you're season on the line in game six at home, down three games, two in the finals. All you got to do is lock in. Don't turn the ball over. Rebound. That's it. If you do those areas well, you are winning this game because you are the better team. You're the bigger team. You're the more talented team. You're the deeper team. The Celtics really just have to keep things simple. It's why it's so maddening to watch this series and watch the Warriors come so close right now to winning their fourth title. Because it doesn't, not that I haven't earned it, but it has been, I feel... More given to them because the Celtics have been their own worst enemy. They've been inconsistent. The Warriors have capitalized, which you commend them on, and that's what championship teams do. You take advantage of the moment. You take advantage of the breaks other teams give you, and the Warriors have absolutely done that. But the Celtics have showed you when they don't give the ball away, when they rebound, when they don't give second and third opportunities, when Jason Tatum and, and the rest of the crew, Smart, Brown, are just moving the ball and playing unselfish basketball, this team is good, and this team is winning the finals. The issue is we, have seen, we haven't seen it at a consistent rate just yet. Celtics win tonight in Parks. I think a big Jason Tatum game is coming. So that'll do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show. Have a great, a very great weekend and an early happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to my dad, Joe Hickey. I know he's listening. Big fan of the show. I appreciate your support as always. Can't wait to hang with you this weekend. 
So happy Father's Day. Have a great weekend with your fathers. Enjoy the US Open. Let's go, Brooks. Big, I'm hoping for a big performance from Brooks Kepka here at uh, the Brookline course up in Boston. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next Thursday right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.